This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Greetings, dear listeners. There are two things we'd like you to know about this week's episode of Out of Water. First, it's a two-part episode. And since each week we will be covering a full chapter from the Gospel of Mark, it's likely that will happen often. So when you get to the end of this part, if you have time, you'll want to move right on to the next part so you can hear the entire episode. We strive to make each episode of Out of Water no longer than one hour, plus or minus a few minutes. So when this one reached an hour and a half, I split it around the 45-minute mark. Second, the network packet loss gremlins were out in force again this week. Sam and I are on opposite sides of Broward County as we record these episodes, and if the internet decides to drop or slow down packets of data, we get that metal robot cell connection gone wrong sound, and something that is both more fun and more annoying, the Sam speech accelerator as it tries to catch up and keep the audio in sync. I've done all I can to fix or reduce them, but if you hear the occasional odd noise, or Sam sounds like Alvin the Chipmunk, please know there was nothing we could do about it. With all that said, let's fire up the episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Uh, those of you who listened to the episode from last week, you were treated to the sound of Sam's voice sounding like it was gravelly, you know, coming across broken glass. How are you doing this week, <laughs> Sam? Are you hanging in there? I still got a little bit of a cough, but yeah. my voice is better, I think. Okay. I'm back to the same monotone, nasally, <laughs> del- delightful. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll edit out the coughs just like we did last week, and uh, it'll be it'll be fine. Uh, this is actually the first week of a new series. We're excited to welcome you to that. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark for the next 16 weeks, uh, which is because Mark has 16 chapters, convenient that. And uh, the first eight weeks of which we're going to be talking about what Mark tells us regarding the identity of Jesus. What can we learn about who Jesus was? And, and I mean, we know the obvious answer, right, Sam? He's the Son of mm-hmm. God. That's the obvious answer. Jesus is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. But he's way more, it's way more complicated than that. It's like he, he can be described in so many different terms. He's got so many different, you know, adjectives that can be used. Like Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was a, a prophet. Jesus was, you know, we've got all these different things. So we're going to find out about the identity of Jesus. And then we're going to pivot for the last eight weeks and talk about the mission of Jesus. But we'll get to that when, when we get to that. This week we're in uh, chapter one. Um, Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's unique regarding the Gospel of Mark? Um, maybe give people some idea why we might choose Mark, for instance, as the Gospel to use for this particular series. Well, Mark is is short. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the other people in history named Mark, he wasn't a long talker. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but Mark is known as it's very condensed. It's the earliest gospel that comes out. There's a lot of people um, who theorized that Luke and Matthew used Mark as kind of a baseline to launch their gospels and to add in their own color and flair to their gospels. Um, Mark is the John Mark from the book of Acts who initially went out with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey um, and you know was known by the apostles. And so he wasn't actually one of the apostles, but he's writing with the perspective of the, the apostles um, who taught him. And so he is a, a wonderful guy. At the end of Paul's ministry, he actually refers to John Mark as being one of the most precious people to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John Mark has uh, kind of a cool story. He starts out where you know Paul doesn't want to work with him anymore because after the first missionary journey, John Mark is like, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. <laughs> Which, if you understood what Paul went through on missionary journeys, yeah. you'd understand that. I'm a scribe. I'm not cut out for field work. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, where by the end of it, he's an, you get the sense that he's an entirely changed man just by the way that Paul talks about him. Um, but he's he's very to the point. You know, he's he's going to cover a ton of ground, almost kind of like you know this is probably way too crude of a way of saying it, but he's almost kind of a bullet point gospel. And then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. Where you know you go to the other gospels and they kind of add in a lot more color commentary to the to the stories. Yeah, one of the things that I uh, commented on in study notes this week for everybody was the idea that each gospel really starts off very differently. Um, you know, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, letting us see how he's descended from the line of David, you know. Luke starts off with the record of his birth, and John takes you all the way back to the beginning of creation. It's like there's, <laughs> there's all these different ways to start off, but Mark just picks up in full steam, like mid-conversation. It almost felt, it almost felt to me like, like, I would have walked up and interrupted Mark as he was telling the story, and I just would have sat down and, okay, I, now I'm caught up and we're going forward. Like he just immediately starts with John the Baptist. Hmm. Um, and it's, I've always found that um, other gospels, other gospel accounts, too, will tend to be a little more indirect, and I felt like Mark is an action gospel. It's like everything is action. What did Jesus do? A boom, 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 boom. And then what did that guy do? And then what did that guy do? And what did that guy do? Luke was more detail-oriented as, well, what did they say? And Matthew's like, why did they say that? And so they each have these sort of different things that they bring. And John is like, how did Jesus feel about what they said? So they all have these different flavors that they bring. And I'm simplifying, oversimplifying. I, Again, if I was called before Presbytery, I'd have to deny that I said any of that. Um, yeah. But <laughs> you know, and there's all kinds of theories to it. You know, John is usually the the gospel that focuses the most on Jesus's divinity. It talks about him mm-hmm. in big, big ways. You know, Luke is very much about Jesus's humanity. It's yeah. you know he's getting down and you know dirty with the outcasts. Matthew is focusing on the fact that he's the great deliverer, the king. He's the Messiah. He's very right. Jewish. Um, when you get to Mark, it's, it's kind of an interesting flavor. He's, he's absolutely stressing the divinity of Jesus, but he's also you know, talking about – Mark is pretty masterful in the way that he weaves themes together because he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but he's doing so very simply and expecting us to see the patterns. Mm-hmm. Like he really brings out – he wants you to understand – 
um, details of how, you know, for example, we'll see in a minute how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah. He jumps right into the story and he's like, okay, this is what you need to know that's important. And he, you know, we, when we meet Jesus, it's going to be right at his baptism when he's already 30 years old. And you're like, whoa, where'd this guy come from? Yeah. Um, but you'll see why Mark does that as we, as we talk about it. Yeah. So <clears throat> when we talk about the fact that uh, Mark was the earliest gospel, Mark was actually written, I mean, some people say, what, 20, 30 years after the death of Jesus? Yeah, that would be early. So most people put Mark somewhere between 50 and 65 AD. Okay. Um, so he would have been the earliest one, so within a, cu- a few decades. And by the way, Paul is Paul's letters are in all likelihood happening before Mark's gospel. And so mm-hmm. the gospel is spreading all over the place even before mm-hmm. the gospels are written. And you ask the question, how does that happen? And it's actually an encouraging one to the faith. It means that eyewitnesses are now going back all over the place and spreading the gospel before the gospels have even been penned. Yeah. Because when Paul is writing to all these churches, he's boasting, you know, I give thanks that your faith is spreading everywhere. You know, he'll say things like that to the Thessalonians and to the Romans and Colossians. Um, and so the gospel's exploding all over the place, even before Mark writes the first gospel. Well, how does that happen? People saw with their own eyes and went home and told the stories. Yeah. Well, let's take the first uh, subject matter here, which is John the Baptist. It's the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Um, John the Baptist, uh, relative of Jesus, we believe, I mean, mm-hmm. physically like related to Mary through Mary. Yeah, he's a cousin. Cousin, yeah. And um, he was somebody who... You know, when I when I think of a guy who was wearing camel's hair, a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey, I'm thinking Elijah. You know, that kind of stuff. He's like he's like Old Testament prophet material really come to life. Mm-hmm. And that's very intentional because if you know where the Old Testament left off, Marcus Mark's absolutely making a point. The last book that was written of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and if you go to the last two verses. In the book of Malachi, at the end of your Old Testament, will say that you know that the great day of the Lord or, or whatnot is going to come. It's not going to come until Elijah comes again, and so they would have been waiting around. Remember, Elijah left in chariots of fire. He didn't die. He ascended into heaven, and so everybody's going, "Okay, so Elijah has to come back." Right. And so when you piece together, you know, here's this guy who's going around with camel's hair. Well, you read. 
Second uh, Kings chapter one, when Elijah's being described, he's described as wearing camel's hair and he's got the leather belt around his waist and he's out in the wilderness and he's eating strange foods. And so Mark is saying, hey, this guy is very much like Elijah. Hint, hint, here comes the kingdom of God. Um, you know, other gospels will make it even more plain where they will say, you know, if you remember in Luke's gospel, when, when Zechariah hears from the angel Gabriel, he's told that his son would be born and he would go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. Mm-hmm. So Luke just flat out says it, bam, he's Elijah. And Jesus will later say, John was Elijah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he pits this together. And so John is going to be the precursor, the one who has to come before the Messiah can come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mark blows the ending at the beginning. You say he, <laughs> you know, he, he introduces all of these things in that first sentence. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's another, that's the updated way of saying Messiah from, from the Hebrew. And then it says, you know, so he's not only the Messiah, but he's the son of God. He's the Lord who is coming that needs a way, you know, the way is going to be prepared for him. So when Mark opens his gospel, it's like, hey, everything that the Old Testament's been written about, you know, this is not only the anointed king that's coming, but he's divinity. He mm-hmm. is God coming as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um and so not all Jews would have understood that. You know, they expected an anointed king to come and overthrow the Romans and establish a great kingdom, but fusing divinity with the Messiah would have surprised some people, even though the Old Testament taught that. You know, nobody expected God to become a man. And Mark out of the gates is like, hey, let me just spoil this for you. He's Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he is the Lord. So it says here uh, that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then he says that he's baptizing people in water. Um, what is jo- you know what is John's baptism all about when he when he says he's baptizing them for repentance for the forgiveness of sins? What does that mean? Well, you got to remember, John is he's preparing the way of the Lord, and the Lord is going to be bringing about his kingdom. One of John's messages that he's preaching quite often is the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's calling on the nation to repent, to recognize that they are fallen and broken and that they are sinful, that they've fallen short of what the Lord requires. Uh And so repentance was a way of saying, like, when the Lord comes, I recognize that I (laughs) – I'm in need of forgiveness, that I have fallen short. And so when you went out to be baptized, it marked a cleansing, a kind of a confession before God that I am in need of your mercy. And so it was a picture of kind of bathing, you know, washing your 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 sins away, but it was it was symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was kind of an appeal of of conscience, of of saying, Hey, we need I recognize I need this. Right. Um so it was preparing you then to meet the Lord. You know, it's like that's mm-hmm. the, the idea was it was preparatory. Well, and then he also says later, he says, I baptized you with water, but he, talking about Jesus, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I think trips people up a lot when we think about this idea of baptism in the New Testament, because baptism is one of those sacraments, one of those doctrines that different churches feel differently about. And mm-hmm. sometimes it can be an important distinction. Other times it's like, hey, do you guys dip or do you immerse or do you uh, <laughs> dribble or what do you do? I'm like, dribble. I, <laughs> yeah. 
I put the sprayer on the hose and let them run down the thing and squirt them in the parking lot. Whatever. So there's <clears throat> the, the actual methodology that you use becomes a matter of discussion. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go there. That's I think those are the minor things. I just remind people that I was baptized as both an infant and an adult, so I'm covered either way. I'm I'm good. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I'm sure there would probably be people who would say that that puts your soul in danger. Oh, it does. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but the real question is this idea of water baptism versus baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is the, you know, what is the difference between water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit? When John says Jesus is going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? So, I guess one of the easiest ways to say is when you go back when you're baptized with water. So on on Sunday morning, somebody comes up and says, "I believe in Jesus," and we baptize them with water. The way that our confession, we're Presbyterians, and we hold to the Westminster, you know, catechism, and we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the ways that it describes baptism is it's a sign and a seal. And, you know, I, I was talking with fifth graders about what this means in our communicants class, and I said, you know, it's, it's kind of like a wedding ring. You know, when it's a sign of your commitment to the Lord. When you're baptized, it's like you're coming into the family of God, the visible family of God. You're coming into the covenantal community of faith, and you're saying, I'm throwing my lot in with them. I believe what they believe. I'm, I want to go to church with them. I want to be held accountable with them. I want all those things that the community of faith brings. And so just, but just because you go to church does not mean that you're going to be in heaven. Doesn't mean that. It's, it's a pledge of your conscience in that direction. It's a sign and a, a seal in some sense that, that you're making a pledge to that community and that you have authentic faith, but it's an outward sign. It's not, it doesn't prove what's inside you. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is what's really important. That determines if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and the, you've been cleansed by Christ and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside you and empower you, that means you are absolutely going to heaven and you are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness and righteousness and authentic repentance and authentic faith for that matter. Um, and so that's the one that counts. And so I often, you know, one of the things I told our communicants class is, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven? Well, you don't have to be baptized in water to go to heaven. We know that from the thief on the cross, right, who was on the cross. He was fixed on the cross with nails. <laughs> you know, he didn't get down from the cross before he died to be baptized with water. But he was baptized with the Holy Spirit when he expressed authentic faith. And Jesus says to him, this day I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise that can't happen unless the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a big difference. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is a matter of salvation. Baptism with water is an outward sign. It's a pledge. It's joining the covenantal community of faith by pledging your faith in Christ. But it doesn't guarantee you salvation. Yeah. It's just a sign that you're making, an outward expression of something that should be an inward faith. Yeah. But it's also true to say that it is a sacrament and that as such, sure. it's not something that is strictly just a, a casual sort of 
Mm-hmm. The thing about the sacraments are is they're not to be taken lightly. They are mm-hmm. uh, there's they're they're a means of grace. Uh, however, mm-hmm. you know, that's a kind of a mystical statement, but this idea that it's an encounter between you and God. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're being baptized in front of the church, and you're taking a pledge in front of the church, but you're being baptized before God. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's, it's like, not just that God has ordained the church. To be the vehicle by which he extends his so many of the means of grace. Right. So when you're baptized in the church, that's no small thing. That right. has enormous spiritual consequences because God has ordained the church to be a means of grace to people to grow in grace and grow in their faith and, and sanctification and everything else. So that's right. a huge deal. Yeah. When you start to get into those questions, are those essentials for – you know, if a church believes differently with respect to baptism, you know, what does that mean? I'm like, well, if, they, if they're telling you that if you're not baptized, you won't be saved, and meaning by that baptized in water, then I would have to say that's, that's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Mark would agree with that. Uh, you know, the very end of Mark, Mark 16, 16, right? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You know, it's not the lack of water baptism that keeps us from heaven. It's the lack of faith. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. But, uh, of course, now the ESV wants to throw out that verse anyways, but I don't, I'm not uh, always on speaking terms <laughs> with the ESV. Um, okay. And there's other places where it talks about, you know, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, and and what that means, and I've always appreciated the symbolism that is found. Whenever God dwells in something, I may have mentioned this before on a different episode, but whenever God dwells in something, it cannot be consumed. And and you think about that for a moment. And you mm. go back to the burning bush of Moses, and the thing that blew Moses away is he's looking at it, and it's a it's a burning thorn bush, but it's not being consumed. Why? Because the angel of the Lord was dwelling in that bush. God was dwelling in that bush, and so it could not be consumed by the flames. You fast forward to Elijah, which here we are again. Elijah's going to heaven in a chariot of fire. That's that's not a comfortable ride, right? <laughs> you know, and he should be consumed except the spirit of the Lord was with him as he ascended into the heavens and so he's not consumed. Or you think of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and they're in the furnace and they should be consumed, but everybody's looking in in amazement and they're not consumed why? Because there's a fourth man who looks like the Son of God who's in the furnace with them, and they are not consumed. They're not even singed. And so one of the things that's getting at, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, the fires do not consume you. They purify you. And so when it says you know, that Jesus is coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, there's a statement there that when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, like the burning bush, like Daniel's friends, like Elijah – the flames cannot consume you. The judgment can no longer consume you. I can baptize you with water all day long, but you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Right. That is what makes you impenetrable right. to judgment. Right. Yeah, and I've often, uh, you know, one of the things that I like about the the word "baptize," which is a transliteration of the Greek word "baptizo." Is when you look at what it actually means, it is a, it's talking about to be immersed in something. And <clears throat> I know there's some people that will say, no, 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 it just means to dip. I'm like, yeah, but it, it was talking about the process by which commercial dye makers would dye fabric and they would, they would dip it under the, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's a reference to immersion. <laughs> 
I agree. Uh, people are like, well, why don't you immerse babies? I'm like, because babies don't like being immersed. We don't need to do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but it is an idea of being immersed. And, and that's something that when I thought about, you know, John's statement that I baptize you with water, but Jesus, the one that comes after him, is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Thinking about the idea that Jesus is going to immerse us in the Holy Spirit, that it's mm. it's about this idea of being surrounded by the Spirit, of being flooded by the Spirit. Um, and that's the, the sort of complete uh, in, uh, encapsulation of the Spirit. And I'm one of those guys that did not have a very um, emotional reaction to my conversion. With me, it was very kind of logical, transactional sort of thing. God, mm-hmm. I think God had prepared me for uh, hearing the gospel. Uh, I've told the story plenty of times. I won't tell it again. But I think he had prepared me for hearing the gospel so that when I heard it, I responded to it. I, and, and, but the way that I responded to it was to know with an absolute certainty that what I was hearing was the truth, that heaven had nothing to do with how I lived my life, but it had to do with my faith the object of my faith was I trusting and relying on Christ. And so I believe theologically that, that that's the moment at which I was baptized in the Spirit. For some people, that's a very emotional thing. There's great release mm-hmm. from certain specific sins or conditions or whatever. There's, it can be an overwhelming experience, and it wasn't for me. Um, that doesn't mean that it's any less valid. Agree. You know. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, it's not something that when we say that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're not saying that there's going to be a certain set of, of things that that then happens. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I'm comfortable in saying that if you tell me I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, didn't do a thing to me. I'm not changed at all. I'd be like, hmm. Yeah. Rethink that. Rethink that. Maybe <laughs> maybe when the Holy Spirit like took aim, you ducked or something. I don't know. But I don't think you got that that dunking. Um, you know, for me, uh, mostly what it did was set up years of conflict where I was wanting to do good and not doing good and wanting to to, you know, follow the Lord and feeling like I was failing at it and not and you know, I had this sort of because you know my sinful habits were really well established <laughs> as a mm-hmm. teenager, and um, I was much worse off <laughs> than I was beforehand because I was I had this constant sort of conflict, and it took some time for mm-hmm. me to work through that and to understand what was going on and to and to you know so sometimes it it's but it a, began the war. That's yes, the important thing. That's the correct right. That's correct. You know, w- without the Holy Spirit, there's no war. Right. You know, I was perfectly kinda... happy. You know, I was just, you know, <laughs> you got got something. To You're drink. empty, but you don't know why. You're yeah. happy with the little sins that you get, but then they leave you empty. Anybody got Spirit. weed? I'm good. You got some weed? Yeah. We're all right. It's it's awesome. You know. Yeah, the Holy Spirit comes along, and it's it's sanctifying you to where you're more in the image of the design that your Creator has in mind. Right. You know, He's conforming you more into the image of Christ, and you don't have that desire before the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, and before authentic faith, you don't have a desire to say, you know what, I want to be more selfless. You right. know, it's like, you know right. that, and if you do, it's super fleeting. But the Holy Spirit wages war. You feel that. Um, and with time, and the more you surrender, the more you find joy. 
in the life that he's called you to. He he brings you to newness of life. So as we're talking about the identity of Jesus from Mark 1, we would say that John the Baptist was a baptizer, and so was Jesus. Jesus Mm -hmm. was a baptizer. He didn't... He didn't baptize in water. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was indeed a baptizer. One of, one of the patterns that Mark is intentionally putting here that's found in all the Gospels is he talks about the baptism of Jesus in ways that are to remind you of other stories of uh, that are compared to baptisms, actually, in the Old Testament. So it says here that the Spirit comes down upon Jesus, that heavens open up when he comes up out of the water, and the Spirit comes down on him like a dove. In the creation story, they had an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, which was mainly in Hebrew. It was originally in Hebrew. But in the Aramaic translation, which is called the Targum, it says that at the beginning when the Spirit hovered over the waters at the moment of creation, that it was fluttering above the waters like a dove. And so that language that you find in the New Testament is picking up on what they believed about creation, that the Spirit is hovering over the waters like a dove. And what it's saying, when Jesus is baptized, this is a new creation. All things are about to be made new. And in the first century, they would have heard that. Like, it's not just, oh, the Holy Spirit's hovering like a dove. They would have been like, oh, my gosh, like it did at creation, fluttering like a dove. And then God comes and says, hey, I have found a human representative. This is my beloved son, and I have found pleasure with a man on earth who has met my standards at 30 years old. And by the way, when did David launch as a king of Israel? At 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is fulfilling all these patterns as the son of David. He's launching his ministry at 30. He is – Elijah has come. He's the forerunner. Uh, And now Jesus is ready to go. And then the baptism comes and it's like, hey, here is the new creation. Uh, And the New Testament will compare the flood story to a baptism. Peter Mm -hmm. will do that, right? And what happens over the waters? The dove comes, you know, flying back to Noah to announce what? A new beginning. Or at at, – the Red Sea, which Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10, where it talks about the wind coming over the waters. Well, the word wind in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same word for spirit. So spirit comes over the waters at the Red Sea and parts it. And so that's a baptism. It's a brand new beginning for the Hebrew people. And so when you read this, so the readers of Mark would have gone, oh, my gosh, all things are being made new. This is a new beginning for us. Wonderful news. So, And, and I think it's fair to point out at this point that um, – to exhaustively mine all of the things that we're going to see Mark tell us about Jesus from each of these chapters, I'm not saying that – That I don't know. First of all, I don't know that that's possible. No, it's not. I think every time that you come back and read this again, there's going to be something else that's going to occur to you about who Jesus is or how wonderful he is or what he's doing mm-hmm. or what he's – so there's going to be something else that you're going to get every single time that you come to the scripture. That's one of the great things about scripture. Um, I had something that I read the other day that I'd never thought of before, and it was really profound when I read it. And that was somebody was talking about the uh, account of the resurrection. This was for Easter, which is just passed chronologically, mm-hmm. um, in Matthew. And it talks about the fact that uh, an angel came and rolled away the stone in front of witnesses. It says the guards saw it and became like dead men. The women were there. So, like, they didn't come and find the stone rolled. They came and the angel rolled it away for them. And then he says to them, 
he's not here. He's already gone before you to Galilee. And this person made the comment that the stone didn't need to get moved for Jesus to get out. The stone needed to be moved so that we could see in and see that he wasn't there. And I thought, I've never thought of that before. And that's profound because Mm -hmm. what God wanted to show us was he's risen. Really, Mm -hmm. you don't have to, you know, he didn't need to move the stone to rise. (laughs) You know, this Jesus can pass through solid objects when he wants to now. He's got the whole God thing back. But, (laughs) you know, but I want you to be able to look in and see that the grave is empty. And that's something that I've read that account many times and never really thought about the chronology of things. We just always talk about the stone rolled away and Jesus came out of the grave. I'm like, well, according to Matthew, Jesus came out of the grave and the stone was still there. Basically, he just walked through the stone. I did want to say that as we're working through this series – there's probably going to be things where they're going to be like, guys, you missed this. I'm like, we may have. We, we, <laughs> or we may have not missed it and just not had time to get to it. Um, but we, you know, that's the encouragement to, for you to come back and read and reread Scripture mm-hmm. um, because you're going to learn something new from it uh, each time that you do. So after the f- opening verses here about John the Baptist, um, we come into very short <laughs> – Mark is like, you know – Oh, yeah, and Jesus was tempted. Um, (laughs) You talk about bullet points. This is one of those really tiny bullet points where they don't even fill the whole thing in. Um, Mark says, verses 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, that's not a very significant account of what went on, and... uh, if you do your personal worship with us and you got your study notes this week, uh, you'll notice that I immediately took you to Matthew chapter 4 <laughs> <laughs> to have a longer explanation of it. And in Matthew, in the account in Matthew 4, uh, Matthew tells us three things, that Satan tries to get Jesus to turn stones into loaves of bread. Mm-hmm. Then he also tries to get Because he's been fasting for 40 days. He's, he's hungry. hungry. Yeah. Super hungry. Yeah. So he's he's trying to get Jesus to say, hey, you know what? Hey, Jesus, it's understandable. Man, you're weak and you're hungry. Go ahead and just do this, this, uh, this thing here. He also then takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, you know, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes Psalms to him as to why he should do that. And then the final thing is, he said, hey, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the world. If you fall down and worship me, I will give those to you. So three temptations Mm -hmm. that he gave him, um, and each of those were things that would would be genuine temptations for Jesus. Because in Hebrews we read that our, our high priest was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. And mm-hmm. I take from the in every respect, Sam, to mean that Jesus was genuinely tempted. These were things mm-hmm. that did tempt him. And he was incorruptible. That was my second, you know, identity thing. He's incorruptible. He couldn't be he couldn't be swayed. But we understand the food thing. He's hungry. He's been not eaten for 40 days. But what what was Satan, you know, what was the temptation of these other two things? What was Satan trying to get Jesus to do and why was it why did Jesus resist it? You know, it's like what was the prob, what was the temptation here? 
Yeah, one of the things that Matthew does is for the second temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and tells him to throw himself down into the, the Kidron Valley, which was a massive drop, by the way. Um, it would have been higher than the, the height of the Statue of Liberty. So massive drop. And what he's saying is, man, God has promised he's, you know, he would send his angels to catch you lest your foot be dashed against a stone. So why don't you do it? Put God to the test. Throw yourself down and see if he'll catch you. And what he's tempting, and he, he starts the last, you know, the first and the second temptation by saying, if you are the son of God. Right. And it, what, he's, what he's driving at is, hey, if God really loves you, he wouldn't let you die. He wouldn't let you suffer. Um, you should be able to have – because if, if you're really the son of God, you should be able to have a kingdom without a cross. You know, you shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to deny yourself. Um, what kind of God, what kind of father would really do that to you? You know, and so he's, he's questioning the goodness of God. He's, he's challenging Jesus to say, yeah, you know what? If God really loved me, then I shouldn't have to suffer. And by the way, that's still in Satan's playbook today. You know, like if your life is not going well, you know, that's one temptation. He's more than happy to throw into your, your brain. Like, well, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Yeah. Um, and here it is, you know, with Jesus, and ultimately God's going to bring about something far more beautiful through the suffering. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the uh, – I always think of the verse in Philippians when I was looking at, at, at this temptation where Paul says, that have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus had a purpose and a mission that he was undertaking here. He, you know, he was coming to do a specific thing. And in order to do that, he had to divest himself, to empty himself of some of the rights and privileges that he had as being God. He voluntarily gave those things up for us. His desire for us was so great that not even the cross could keep him from it. And Satan, I think, like like you said, Satan wanted to find out, how bad do you really want these people? Hmm? Mm-hmm. How bad do you want them? Do you want them bad enough to do this show? You know, just, just grab those God powers back. That way they're not going to be able to nail you to the cross. Just come on, just do it, you know? And then I think the final thing with the, if you bow down and worship me, you know, there's a couple things there. The first is that um, in order for that to be a genuine temptation, then there had to have been some sense in which the kingdoms of the world did belong to Satan, it, it was, that it was a genuine offer. But you also notice that this one does not begin with, if you are the son of God. It's mm-hmm. almost like Satan's like, okay, okay, fine. Let's say you are the son of God. I can spare you all this cross thing. Again, you want the world? You want the kingdoms of the world? All you got to do is bow down and worship me. But that would have been a temporary fix, a Band-Aid. And what Jesus wanted was he wanted eternity with us for reasons I can't possibly understand. But he wanted eternity with us. And he wanted it enough that the cross would not put him off. He wanted it enough that he was willing to go through what he went through for us. Mm -hmm. And Satan was trying to get him to say, I don't want these people quite that much. I think that was the whole point of the temptation. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the beginning of creation, there's a, a created order where 
God reigns, but then he creates man and woman to be basically his ambassadors to, to reign over the earth, and they're to reign over all the creatures. But then when you have the fall, what you have is the creatures who tell man and woman what to do, and then man and woman blame God and walk away from God, and the whole created order gets thrown on its head. Yeah. To where Satan is actually the the one who is apparently having authority, and God basically is the fallen world is God saying, "Okay, you want it that way? See what it's like." Hmm. Um, and so Satan essentially has limited dominion. You know, God is still sovereign over all things, but Satan's influence, his fallen world, the the work of the fall, is still in effect in many ways. We're still suffering the curse of the fall. And when one of the things I find fascinating is when Satan quotes for that second temptation, when he tells Jesus, you know, throw yourself down, you know, the angels will catch you lest you strike your foot against a stone. The very next verse is verse 13 in Psalm 91, where the psalmist says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Well, where does that pull from? That's pulling from Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the gospel where it says that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come into the world, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent beneath his foot. But the promise doesn't end there. It says that the serpent will also bruise his heel. And so Satan forgets to quote that part, interestingly, (laughs) right? Conveniently, yeah. Yeah, because the promise is, you know, you're going to destroy the work of the serpent by taking a wound yourself. And so Jesus knows that. He knows the whole mission why he's here. He's going to have to suffer in order to crush the serpent underfoot. And yet Satan is coming and he's taking God's word out of context as though, you know, your victory comes at no expense. If you ever have any kind of suffering, it's, it's, it means that God has failed you. God has walked away from you. And no, God is delivering you through your suffering, actually. Um, you are going to triumph through having your heel bruised. That's how you're going to crush the serpent. Um, and Satan always twists that. And like you're saying, you know, he comes and says, it's it's Romans 1, where it talks about, you know, you worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And Satan is here going, look, like I seem to be in control of all this. And if, if you just worship me, I'll give you everything. Where, you know, the, the irony is, is Jesus is going to be obedient to the Lord. He's going to suffer. He's going to seemingly suffer defeat on the cross. He's going to defeat death, raise from the dead. And then what does God do? He comes to him and says, all things on heaven and earth are now under your dominion. And so Jesus, through his suffering, actually receives what Satan was promising. And in the ultimate eternal scheme of things, Satan had no authority to make that promise because it was all fleeting. Mm. And that Every promise that Satan can make to you in this world is likewise fleeting because the death will death and the grave will steal that promise away. Mm-hmm. You have the promise of wealth, you have the promise of fame, you have the promise of reputation. And Satan can make all kinds of promises, but the grave steals all of those promises mm-hmm. every time. There's only one who overcomes the grave. So Jesus was able to stand up and and be incorruptible in this case. You know, he he faced temptation as great as anything that we face, mm-hmm. um, and yet he did not sin. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think it's interesting because for us, temptation is a very emotional thing. It's like, you know, oh, you just don't know how badly I want that. And some things we feel like we're being tempted for something good. It's like this mm-hmm. is I'm being tempted by something that that isn't it's not wrong to be it's not wrong to want that, you know? I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, again, it's like anything that you want so badly that you're willing to set aside everything else for that. You've just told me what your god is. Mm-hmm. And and that's the same thing with you know, it, it, uh, honestly, that's the same thing with Jesus, is that he wanted something more than he wanted anything else. And that mm-hmm. is, he wanted to see the will of his father done. Yep. And and the pattern that Mark is laying out here is reminding us that Jesus is really unique in the fact that he resists temptation. So remember how I was talking about at the baptism of Jesus when the dove comes down, you know, the spirit comes down like a dove and it's reminding you of creation? Well, what comes right after the creation story? You have Satan bringing temptations. That's Genesis right. 3, you know, and how did man do? He did really badly. Yeah, not so good. <laughs> but that you go fruit to the, looks kind of good to me. I'll have a bite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so man screws it up. Well, you you fast forward to one of the other examples I gave you. Another picture of baptism where you have the spirit coming over the waters of the Red Sea. And right after that, they go out into the wilderness, hint, hint. And they're going to face temptation. And how do the Israelites do? Yeah, they grumble. <laughs> they grumble and they fail. Yeah. Or you think of, of Noah, right? You have the spirit, the dove that comes down to Noah's ark and he lands on Mount Ararat and he plants a garden and it's a brand new beginning for mankind. And how does Noah do before the end of the chapter? He's drunk and passing out naked in front of his kids. Nobody ever teaches that part of the story, thankfully. Yeah. It's probably not fit for kids. But he fails at temptation. And so every time you see this picture of baptism that shows up in the Old Testament, it's almost immediately followed by a period of temptation, which everyone before Jesus fails. Right. And here you have at the beginning of Jesus's gospel, you know, he has been baptized and it's like, okay, here it comes. Here comes the temptation, except he succeeds he he prevails. He he holds his righteousness and his innocence. And so it's like, okay, now this guy's got a chance to be our deliverer because every deliverer who's come before him has ultimately failed. That's the entire point <laughs> of the Old Testament in a lot of ways is it's like one person after the next shows up and you're like, oh, this is going to be the guy. This is going to be the hero. This is the Messiah promised in Genesis 3. And time and again, it's, oh, man, oh, man, they all fall. And this, this one, this one succeeded. Yeah. And that's the, you know, Jesus, uh, who, who John tells us is the, is going to be a baptizer. Jesus is also incorruptible and beyond mm-hmm. temptation. This is the end of part one of this week's episode. Please listen to part two now.